Welcome to episode 149 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. 25 years ago, I attended my first gay pride event. It happened to be the New York City event that marked the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. At the time, I had never heard of the Stonewall riots that marked the beginning of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. I also wasn't entirely sure how I fit into this community, but I was very excited to go to this huge march with a friend of mine and her two-year-old. It was a long, hot day. Soon after, I came out as queer and a decade later as transgender, and I kept going back to the New York City Pride Parade, some years marching, some as a spectator. One year, I sold rainbow bling at an official Pride Festival booth, a dream of mine. Even after I moved to Boston in 2002, I continued for many years to go to the New York City Pride Parade the last Sunday of June. Altogether, I've been to about 15 New York City Pride Parades. I realized tonight that I've attended the Boston Pride Parade for 17 years in a row. Wow. A lot has changed about how I approach this event, especially now that I have two little ones. One thing has stayed consistent. I always start the day by visiting with friends and colleagues as they gather to march. I research the order that organizations are lining up and use that information to figure out how to find and say hello to the folks that I may not see very often throughout the rest of the year. These in-person reconnections bolster our online connection. We remark about whatever project, promotion, or family update has recently been posted about. We hug and shout happy pride as we all move quickly in different directions. This is what pride is for me. And fortunately, my wife and kids have embraced this tradition. The rest of the day might be a mix of marching, watching, or running through water fountains. I just know how the day will begin. Your challenge for this week, commit to going to the same event for years and years until it feels like a reunion each time you show up. Do some research ahead of each event to figure out which friends will be there and what they've been up to recently. When during the event schedule are you most likely to see these friends all in one place? And do you need to orchestrate that or will it happen on its own? What is the minimum experience you need to feel fulfilled by this event? Everything else is a bonus, and you can, you know, just choose your own adventure every time if you know for certain that one thing will definitely happen. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's show. Today's guest helps people get back to the basics of relationships that lead to better opportunities and sales. Having worked as a keynote speaker and a professional master of ceremonies for the last 10 years, he's an advocate for creating strong experiences for conference attendees. He has authored 12 books on the power of business relationships, sales, networking, presentation skills, and entrepreneurship, and has earned the prestigious Certified Speaking Professional CSP designation conferred by the National Speakers Association. He has interviewed over 400 CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders as host of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast, which Inc.com named one of eight business podcasts to listen to in 2018. Please join me in welcoming Tom Singer. Hey, Robbie, thank you for having me on your show. 
Tom, such a joy to have you. Um, you are joining us from your office in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Horns. And, um, you know, you were just pointing to your awesome backdrop, and this is uh, an audio show, but I want people to know that because you host your own show, you do have a really cool backdrop with uh, your show title all up there. So it's sweet. It's awesome to, to also do you another host because I know your sound's going to be great, <laughs> which isn't always the case sometimes. Well, sometimes you interview people who are like, I'm just going to use the built-in one in my computer. That'll be fine, right? <laughs> oh. Yeah. So um, thanks for being on here. And as you know, it's a show about leadership and building strong networks. So, so tell me, Tom, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, I think leadership gets defined in a lot of different ways by a lot of different people. To me, leadership really means being present, having a vision, and helping the team get across whatever the gap is that, you know, we have to tackle, that we have to to cross. And so I, I think that that's what a leader does. A leader helps everybody on his team or her team get across that gap. And there are so many different ways that you can do it. But I think that that is it. It's not, it's not selfish. It is team-oriented, and it's all about results. I like the focus on results. That's, that's what you're getting at. Right. It's, I, mean, you know, I mean, if you just lead people in circles, that doesn't do any good. I mean, we can, you know, we can lead around and around and around, but if we're not going somewhere, if we're not actually getting to productivity, then it really doesn't make any difference. So I think that it has to be team-oriented, and I think it has to be towards a goal. Mm. And then to answer the other part of the question, yeah. I don't know that I ever realized I could do it. I mean, I, I have led sales teams. I have led, you know, my, my family. I've uh, led my friends. I've, I've gone on adventures. People always say, oh, you're a leader. I don't know that I ever realized that. I think it's just something that, uh, you know, I, I want to be results oriented. I want to get towards, you know, productivity. And if no one's doing it, I'm just going to take charge. Mm. Were you always that way? Is this, is this kind of a core part of you? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that when I was younger, I was I, I didn't have the confidence. I was worried too much about what other people thought about me. But I can go back and point to things when I was very young where I always sort of stepped up and, and did things. A real quick story. My second grade class went to see a taping of the television show Truth or Consequences. And you are so too young, Robbie, to remember this show. But Bob Barker had a show that was on primetime television before The Price is Right was a morning show. And it was called Truth or Consequences. And they got people to do silly things for cash and prizes. And my second grade class went and we were all sitting together. And during the break, Bob Barker, who was a primetime television star, came into the audience and was interviewing the kids. And he looked at the kid next to me, put the microphone in the kid's mouth and said, what's your name? And the kid kind of froze, like, oh, my God, Bob Barker is talking to me. And I leaned over and said, I know what his name is. And Bob Barker was like, really? Because apparently they were looking for outgoing kids. And I'm like, yeah, his name's Matt Birch. Bob Barker's like, yeah, tell me about him. I go, oh, he's got a brother named Scott. He's in the second grade. He goes, now tell me about you. And I started telling him about me. And Bob Barker's like, you're going to be perfect. Why don't you come up during the uh, next commercial break with your mom? And I ended up being a contestant on Truth or Consequences because I just I I didn't have the fear of stepping up. Yeah, and and clearly at that in that moment you weren't afraid of what people were going to think. You were like, well, let me help with this kid. I have to answer the question. Right. So I mean, I I have these shining moments where I would step up and say anything, and then I have other moments where I was definitely just an insecure teenager or whatever. So I I don't I don't think I would say I always led, but uh, I was always. Uh, I was always outgoing. Mm. 
Now, did you run for office? Were you that kind of kid or did not, not interest you? You know, I probably should have been like senior class president, but I was too scared. I never did. Um, I did when I got into college. I was really involved in, in college organizations. I was president of the council of my dorm. Uh, I was never president, but I held all the other offices in my college fraternity. So I did when I got into my 20s and my late teens, but I never did uh, in high school. Again, I, I was too worried about what people thought. And yet I did other things. I was in the drama department and uh, we had a television newscast and I stepped up and I was an anchorman my senior year. So I, I don't think there was ever anything where you could say, oh, he was always a leader or he was always a chicken. I think it just depended on the situation. Now, were there people who saw some potential in you that were encouraging you to do things like become the anchorman? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I've always been fortunate. I've always had people who've sort of mentored me and showed me the way. Uh, when the tryouts came for the uh, uh, the anchor for the, the Apache News, we were the Arcadia Apaches. Uh, and uh, when the tryouts came, I was a junior. And in my history class, I sat next to a young lady who was a senior and she had been on the news that year. And she said, you really should apply. And I was like, oh, no, only cheerleaders and like football players get to be the anchor people. And she moved her pom-poms out of the way and said, that's not true. But it kind of was. But she said, I think that you've got what it takes to do it. And I, she was the producer of the show her senior year. She goes, I want to leave it in good hands. And so she saw something and encouraged me to do it. Or I probably never would have tried. So mm-hmm. I think people have always stepped up and said, get over yourself and has caused me to, to, to go forward and do things. Now, there was a fun fact that I, I know you sometimes share that you did when you were 21 years old, which I, I'm curious about in the context of in college, you started stepping up and taking on like bigger roles and responsibilities, being more out there. You also brought up this truth and consequences at a very young age. <laughs> Wasn't my only game show. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. What was, so what led you to be on another game show at 21 years old? So we're going to take up the whole time telling silly game show stories, but uh, I lived in my frat house, and in the mornings, I would wake up early, which in college was 9 o'clock, and I would make a cup of coffee, and I would sit in the TV room, and I would watch the $25,000 Pyramid, Dick Clark's show that ran for like 25 years on CBS, and I would watch the $25,000 Pyramid, and I would play along, and I'd try to be quiet because there were bedrooms off the TV room, so I'd turn the sound down really low, and I'd recline the chair so that my feet would block the word at the bottom, and then I'd quietly play along, but the problem is is that I'm not quiet. So I would literally look at the TV screen, and I'd be like, elephant, giraffe, rhinoceros, lion, <laughs> tiger, bear. And like after weeks of this, this guy, Don, got up one morning. He lived off the TV room, and he's like, what do you do out here in the mornings? It's like you have Tourette's syndrome. Because you're just shouting words. And I go, oh, I'm so sorry I'm loud. I'm playing along with the game show. And he thought it was ridiculous, but there was extra coffee in the coffee pot. So he would get coffee and watch me. And after like two weeks of this, Don is like, oh my God, you're so good at this. You have to try out. And at the end of those shows, they used to say, you know, before the internet, they would go, if you're going to be in the Los Angeles area and would like to be a contestant, call this number. Well, I went to college in San Diego. So it was a two-hour drive to Los Angeles. And... Don wrote down the number and said, you're going to call. So it's the same thing. You know, back in those days, somebody sort of like pushed me along a little bit. And uh, I drove to Los Angeles and I tried out and I got put into the contestant pool. And about a month later, they called and I went up and I was a five-day returning champion. I won $20,000, a trip for two to Brazil, a sailboat and a stereo. So yeah, this is the reason I had to ask you this question because I was like, what did he win? (laughs) And $20,000 at that time was a a to lot. a 21-year-old? Absolutely. <laughs> I was 
And I was on for five days. You can only be on for five days, although I did lose on the fifth day. But uh, otherwise, I kept winning, uh, at least against the contestant. I was, I was not doing very well in the winner's circle, or I could have won thirty, forty, dollars or 50000 But, uh, you know, it was, it was a nice amount of money for a 21-year-old. So did that set you in a different trajectory, having had that experience? Did it allow you to create possibilities for yourself that maybe weren't there? You know, I think both both being on the television news when I was in high school and I think that experience and, and a handful of others kind of got me over being scared uh, and, and allowed me to put myself out there. And if I didn't get it, I didn't get it. But trying out for things, you know, if you, if you don't try out, I think I learned in high school and college, if you don't run for office or you don't try out, you have a 100% shot of not getting it. And so, yeah, I think that those are things that sort of came my way. Uh, I have an older, well, I have three older brothers, but one of my older brothers told me when I was in my early 20s, he said, you're the luckiest person I've ever met. He goes, things just fall in your lap. And then I realized they didn't fall in my lap. I had to try out for them. And so I I realized that if you're going to be lucky, you have to put yourself in the path of luck. It doesn't mean you're going to get everything, but if you don't try, you're going to get nothing. Mm -hmm. So yes, I learned that at that stage of my life. And so today you're a speaker and an MC, but you had a previous life doing sales, which is where a lot of the skills that you're teaching other people, I think, stems from the stories I'm sure that you're sharing also stem from that time period. Is that the first corporate job that you did? Or yeah, was so I, I started off managing a photography studio, but my job was sales. I mean, we, we did a lot of high school proms and we did a lot of corporate events. And my job was to, to bring that business in and then manage and train all the photographers who worked for us. Uh, and then I worked for a couple of people in, the, in that event photography world. And then I went to work in sales. I, I literally was selling advertising for the Chamber of Commerce for a number of years. And uh, then I sold computer training. And then I went into more of a marketing, kind of hybrid marketing business development roles for uh, a law firm and then a bank and then a, co- a consulting firm. So yeah, I always had a say, uh, sort of a merger of sales and marketing, but it was always about growth and always about getting more business in the door. It's so interesting because that's also similar to the trying out, like 100% of the time that you don't ask for a sale, you don't get the sale. So you clearly got over that fear of, I don't know, I guess the fear of rejection. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I still hate rejection. I, st- you know, I mean, I'm a salesman now because if I don't sell the gigs, I don't speak. So you know, people always go, oh, I want to be a speaker. And I go, are you a great salesperson? Because I've got to sell it first. The, you know, the oldest profession is sales. You have to get the business in the door or you go hungry. So, uh, you know, I don't like rejection, but yes, I mean, with sales, if you don't make the ask, you can present all day long. But if you don't tell people, you know, yeah, I want to work with you. Here's a contract. Then mm-hmm. you're not going to get the business. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of it does come from trial and error. I think if, if you don't try new things, which has become a big mantra of mine, you're just going to get the same results. So if you're going through life and you're not happy with the results that you're having, well, what are you trying new? And that's something that, you know, I talk to people about a lot. People are like, oh, I don't like to try new things. But you're not happy with your results. So quit doing the same thing. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a quote about that, right? <laughs> you do the same thing over and over again, right? Yeah, so uh, what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing today? I kind of find all of it rewarding. So every now and then I meet people, you know, in our business, Robbie, who are speakers, and they go, oh, it's not about me. I don't, I don't care about being on stage. I, I cry bull. I think that the reality is is that you can't be in this business if you don't like being up front, if you don't like that role of the speaker and the person who's on the stage. So I think part of it is is, is I do like that, 
But more importantly is I like it when the stuff that I teach really impacts people. When somebody reaches out and says, you know, what you said last year changed the trajectory of my career. Or I ran into somebody and they said, you know, I always do what you taught me about following up with people and it's made me more successful. When someone says that I've helped them, I think that's the biggest thing. But you know, I wanted to be an actor when I was a little kid and I never pursued it. You go back to that story of being too scared. And I grew up in Los Angeles. You'd think I could have, you know, just gone and tried something, but I never did. And being a speaker sort of fills that I get to be on stage thing. And you also have a hobby that keeps you on stage as well, right? Well, that's kind of newer. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a hobby or if it's a, a, a craziness, but our mutual friend, I think your friend's also with Drew Tarvin. Um, Drew apparently has a bad habit of inviting all his speaker friends to go to an open mic night with him and prepare five minutes and get up and do five minutes at an open mic night. And in me, he created a monster. Most of the people I know who've gone with Drew to open mic night do one open mic night and check the big box and say, I went to a comedy club and did a five-minute set. Look at me. I have now in 12 months done 48 open mic nights. So once a week, just about, uh, I go to an open mic night either in Austin, Texas where I live or I travel uh, to about 40 different cities or at least 40 different weeks out of the year. And so if I'm sitting in you know, Tulsa by myself or Tucson with nothing to do, I could watch Netflix on my computer or I could go to a comedy club and do a five-minute set at open mic night. So I tend to do that when I'm in another city. Um, so I'm combining my travel with, you know, you can call it a hobby. Uh, I call it uh, exploring the world of comedy. But, but here's the interesting thing. After a year of this, I will tell you, after 10 years as a professional speaker, I've never done anything that has helped me as much as the comedy because comedy is the hardest use of the, of the spoken word. It's so much harder than giving a speech. It's so much harder than improv or doing a podcast. It, and I've done all that stuff. Or I was in a, a short movie once, so it's harder than acting. But I will tell you, it's so hard that it has made like my timing and my ability to interact with an audience when I'm speaking so much better. And it's not that I'm ever telling jokes or trying to be funny. It's just my playfulness with an audience. Uh, repeat clients have recently pointed out, you're so much more engaging. They go, we liked you is why we brought you back. But, but what's the delta? What's different? And it's totally has to be the stand-up. That's really cool. And I don't think a lot of people would equate those things together and think, hmm, I want to improve my stage presence. I should try stand-up. I will tell you, I think that entrepreneurs, no matter what field they're in, it doesn't have to be speaking. Anybody who's an entrepreneur has so much that they can learn from professional comics. I, I've made friends with some of these people who are really pursuing comedy as their career. And if you separate the ones who are really pulling ahead and, and those who aren't, they have some work ethic and business uh, acumen and sort of how they network and how they position themselves that any entrepreneur can learn from. That's really cool. So uh, getting back to so where you are today. So you, you, um, you do a lot of different things, but you're one of the few people I know who builds himself as a professional MC. How did you, how did you discover that niche? Because most people think of themselves as a speaker and they want to come and deliver their own content and you know, share a message, have impact in the world, change people's hearts and minds, whatever it is. And they don't think of themselves playing that role of an MC. And, and they probably don't actually think of it as being that important of a role. And yet doing it, you realize, oh my gosh, this really pulls together the whole thing and sets a tone for the whole show. And so how did you decide that this was, a, this was your part of your work? 
Well, I'll follow up with how I started doing it. But the, but the first part is, is that a lot of meeting planners don't value it. And yet they'll pay a keynote speaker twenty-five dollars or $40,000 for 45 minutes, but they won't pay an MC twenty to be there for four days. And yet the MC really sets the tone for the whole event and weaves everything together. So I actually believe that a great MC is actually in some ways more important than a great keynoter. Now, people don't, don't value it that way. But one of the things I do when I'm the MC is I bring my content. So you were talking about, oh, some people just want to come and deliver their content and have an impact. I took my contact, my content about how do you connect and I spun it around and made it about the conference. So uh, the way it came about was 10 years ago when I was first starting out, I had a keynote. I don't remember what it was called, but it's the same keynote I do now under the name of connecting with people in a gadget crazy world. Because 11 years ago, we got the smartphone and everybody thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to network anymore. I can just click my way to all my business contacts. And I knew at the time it wasn't going to work that way. And so I used to go and speak about the importance of human-to-human engagement, of networking, and all of the social media gurus from all over the country would be speaking at the same marketing conferences that I were, and, and they were basically laughing at me. And I was talking about, don't connect with everyone on LinkedIn and Facebook just because they breathe air. My rule has always been, with exceptions, but for the most part, I don't connect to just every stranger who sends me a LinkedIn request, if I get an, a LinkedIn request, I like to have had a cup of coffee, a meal, or a beer with a person or have a legitimate reason while I'm connecting. So the truth is, is I don't have to have a cup of coffee, a beer, or a meal with a meeting planner. If a meeting planner sends me a LinkedIn request, I'm going to accept it. But a pet shop owner in Topeka, I need to know why. Otherwise, you just end up with a lot of strangers in your feed. And all these social media gurus were like, no, 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 Tom's an idiot. And they would like quote me after I would speak. They'd come up next and say, I politely disagree with the last speaker. It's all about numbers. And, and, and they would go, now all these people are like writing all these same people who told me I was wrong are writing these long diatribes on their blogs or wherever about culling the numbers in social media that if you've never met the person or never had a conversation with them, what's the use of being connected? And it's like, oh, really? And I actually talked to one of these people and I said, you used to disagree with that. And they go, that's because everybody was eating up what I had to say. Now I've turned it around and people are eating it up because they're tired of this. He goes, and I go, so you're saying the truth doesn't matter. And they're like, no, it's how do you get people riled up? That's why I don't like people who are self-proclaimed gurus. Wow. (laughs) But, uh, you know, the, the point is, is that I've always held true to the fact that you don't need to connect with everyone because they have red blood in their veins. And so that was my, what my speech was about. And what I started doing was halfway through the speech, I would turn it around and say, I have an idea. Let's use this conference as a human laboratory. And then I would talk about how do you network better at the conference? And meeting planners started coming up to me going, oh my God, that was worth everything. Like, you're going to make my whole event better. And one of the meeting planners said, you're my conference catalyst. And I was like, ooh, I I like that. And I went and bought conferencecatalyst.com. And for the next six or seven years, everything I did was around that name that I was the conference catalyst. Because if you had me open your conference, people would engage more with each other while they were on site. They would put their phones down during happy hour and actually talk to human beings. And and it worked and it really happened. And uh, so... What happened was one year, somebody said, I have to have you back next year because you had such an impact on my conference, but I can't have the same keynote speaker. And they said, could you MC it and use that content? So what I started doing was taking my content about how do you network better while live at an event 
and I started breaking it into seven-minute chunks. And so each morning and each afternoon as the MC, I would do the little sort of networking 10 minutes. And right before people would go to happy hour, I would tell them, all right, here's a game we can play at happy hour. And I would talk about just how do you connect better? And if you're an introvert, you know, how do you own it over the extroverts? And people got excited. And then what I found was people would have me MC it two and three years in a row. Now, they don't pay me three days worth of keynote fees, but it is a premium priced product. So I like doing it. And, you know, when you have an impact on people and you're there for four days, you get a lot of spinoff business. So I like being the MC because I have more time with the audience. It's brilliant. And as you know, you're doing the work that I, I want to be doing more of. So it's always good to hear the origin story because I think, like you said, most people aren't valuing. Um, well, most people going to events aren't really thinking about why they're leaving their house. You know, they're, they're, they think they're maybe going for content or someone told them to go or their boss was paying, but they really don't set intentions around building relationships or building connections or... And that's, what, that's what I've talked about for, I mean, I've been doing it full-time for 10 years, but I started 15 years ago. And that's, that's what I've been talking about from the beginning, even before we had the smartphones, was, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, it's all opportunities in life come from people. And sort of that old, uh, old adage, old cliche, and it's old enough cliche that it comes up in my first book because uh, I love quoting cliches. And that is that people do business with people they know, like, and trust. But here's the thing that I've witnessed over 15 years. The definition of the word know, K-N-O-W, has drastically changed in our society since I started doing this work because we now all think we know everybody. People who listen to this podcast go, oh, I know Robbie. Well, they don't know Robbie. They know how Robbie interviews once a week for his show, or if they, you know, read your blog, or if they, you know, follow you on Twitter or some other thing. Oh, I know Robbie. Well, no, if you haven't actually sat and had conversations with Robbie, you, you don't have the backstory. You don't have the intonation in his voice. And that takes time. You know, it takes time to get to know, like, and trust. And now we're fast forwarding to know. And what I tell people is that means that it's harder to get to real, like, and trust. But when you really get there, it's more powerful than it's ever been. Yeah, I actually think that we're going to see a rebound around people wanting to connect, particularly the generation that's coming up now that's always had you know social media and phones and distractions. Once they get a taste of in-person connection, they're going to like crave it. So I speak at uh, a lot of like young professionals conferences And I will tell you, the millennials are the hungriest for this information. They're like, you know, it's not like they're like, when I talk about like sending a, uh, you know, send a handwritten note as a follow-up, it's not like they come up and go, what is this pen and paper that you speak of? But they're blown away by how it works. I literally, I, I mentor a guy who's 29 and he sends handwritten notes when people do him favors and it has led him to more opportunities. Like people have said, no one his age does this and he gets the promotion. And he's like, how did you know? And I'm like, because I know. Old. <laughs> old and wise. <laughs> so when you're thinking about your own network, because you've you know, you've had this varied work history, you've been doing this uh, self-employed stuff, you speak everywhere, 40 cities a year. As you're thinking of your own network, how are you thinking about nurturing not the closest you know, circle of people, but like the second and third layers out, the people you meet, you know, each year at a conference, you might see them, or maybe you worked with them five years ago, but you have no reason to work with them now. Like, are there any habits or practices or philosophies you have around sustaining those connections? Yeah. So if I'm connected to somebody in LinkedIn, every July and every December, 
I go through alphabetically a letter a day and small letters get combined because there's only 20 work days in the month and there's 26 letters, but we can put X and Z together, X, Y, and Z together. And what I do is each day I go through alphabetically all of my contacts in LinkedIn. Now, I don't reach out to everybody, but I literally go, huh, so if I was in S's and I'm like, oh my God, Robbie Samuels, I haven't talked to Robbie. Oh my God, it's been a year or maybe two years or ah, forever. And then what I'll do is I will leave LinkedIn and go to my regular email. And because a lot of people don't ever read the in-mail. So it's kind of like, you know, it's a hit and miss if they get it. But uh, I'll go to my regular email and I'll email and say, hey, Robbie, you know, I thought of you today. I don't say I was going through the S's in LinkedIn and you're an S. But I I go through and I say, oh, I was thinking of you today. Uh, Hope all is going well, blah, 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 blah. And so I send like four or five. I don't do everybody in the alphabet, but I'll do a handful every single day twice a year because July and December are really slow for me. And so I can, I can work through that. So that's one way that I'm making sure that at least sometimes every couple of years, I'm touching the people who matter. Sometimes there's people I've had a cup of coffee, a meal or a beer with over the last decade who there's no reason to follow up with them. They're still in my LinkedIn and they, they, made, the, they made the cut at one time, but there's no there there. And that's okay. You don't have to follow up with everybody. Everybody doesn't have to be a tier two or a tier three contact. Some people can just be humans who you cross paths with and that's all right. Mm -hmm. I like this. This is a very actionable thing. And I like that you're also going back through and thinking about reaching out. I mean, in some ways it's just like a, Hey, what's up? Like, how are you? Kind of message. Like people always say, well, what do I say to them? It's like, well, you just, Hey, that thought of you. Well, I started something else this in 2019. If if somebody crosses my mind, like I'm driving and uh, I have a daughter who is getting married uh, next year. And so we have wedding on the brain in our family. And I was thinking about a friend of mine who used to work when it was brand new for the company called The Knot, the big wedding planning. You know, it's now like this gargantuan thing. He worked for them when they were really small. But I thought something came up about The Knot. And I thought, oh my God, I know somebody who used to work at The Knot. I hadn't talked to him in a year or more. And so I just emailed and just said, hey, Alan, I was thinking of you today. And then we were chatting back and forth and something came up about the wedding. He goes, oh, that's why you thought about me. And I'm like, yeah, well, doesn't matter why. Yeah, I think we, we I hesitate. I immediately reach out if I think of somebody. I, I think that's, uh, that's the thing. It's like not hesitating. So many people talk themselves out of doing that very simple act of, hey, what's up? I thought of you. Um, I just sent one yesterday to someone that my we we used to be close friends and he sort of fell out of our social circle. And my wife and I were talking about him and I said, I wonder what he's up to. Wrote him a note. <laughs> you know, like you, you don't know where those those conversations lead. Have any of them actually turned into like a renewed connection or that led somewhere? Like I mean, reaching out to people, you know, I yeah, I mean, I've had people say, Oh my God, I can't believe you reached out. My company is just talking about, you know bringing someone in to do some training for our sales meeting. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're out of sight, is out of mind. So you've got to find ways, you know, to get out there and, and be in front. And, and, you know, social media really for a while was a great tool until they all decided they were going to control the algorithms. And now we don't see in Facebook, we don't see anybody. I mean, I have hundreds of people I'm connected to in Facebook who every now and then I'll be like, huh, and I'll go to their page and they post all the time. But Facebook has decided we're not worthy to see each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very interesting. You have to be very proactive. The information is there right at our fingertips, but we do have to be more proactively engaging with them. So what about the diversity of your network? Like, is that something that you've been thoughtful about? I know that- Yes, all white males. <laughs> you've, uh, well, I, I, I know you're joking about I'm just that. kidding before anybody like turns it <laughs> off. Well, no, I, I know that you are in a really cool peer mastermind 
that has challenged you in some ways around who you know and the relationships you have. Um, but is that beyond that? Are you thinking about how to diversify your network? So I, I, I don't know that they've, you, when you say they challenge you, you make it sound like I really only hang out with white males. Uh, no, I, I definitely think that we are better. One of the things I talk about in, in, in my training is, is that we're better when we surround ourselves with people who are different from us. But we're drawn, whether you know, we want to admit it or not, we're often drawn to people who are like us. I will literally sit back at a conference uh, the night before it starts and nobody knows who I am because I haven't been the MC or I haven't been the keynote speaker yet. And they'll have the big welcome party and I'll stand back over in the corner and I'll watch. And the millennials will all clump together and the baby boomers will all come together and, you know, groups of women will clump together. We're, we're drawn to people who are like us. And that's just sort of what we do. Yet I think that we're better people when we get to know people of different backgrounds, when we're around people of, of different uh, religions and uh, different genders and different races, people who grew up in different parts of the world, uh, people with different, I'm going to say this one out loud. I know it's going to shock your listenership. People with different political views. I know it's horrible. It's horrible. We should we should unfriend everybody who doesn't exactly agree with everything. No, I think that when we hang out with people who have different political views, different sexual orientation, I think we become better people. And you know, you talk about my mastermind group. You're talking about my friend Jessica. Jessica and I couldn't be more different. If you had said, "Let's find the two most different people we can." And, you know, she has a lot of tattoos. She has purple hair. Uh, she has maybe a different sexual orientation. Uh, she's a lot more of a free spirit. And yet, I don't have any siblings that are girls. I don't have any sisters. And yet, I call her my sister. My kids refer to her as their, their fake aunt. And, you know, she has a joke when I say that. She, I say she's the sister I never had. She says I'm the brother she never had, although she actually has a brother. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, and Jessica Pettit was a guest on this show and episode 85. And um, this is why I can't believe it took so long to have you on this show, Tom. <laughs> yeah, you, you avoid best friends of people who've already been on the show. But, but yeah. the fact of the matter is, is that, yeah, I mean, Jessica has showed me a side of the world that I didn't grow up in, in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And, yeah. and, that, and that's awesome. But I also grew up with parents who were very big believers that, you know, you don't judge people based on the color of their skin or based on how much money they have. So this isn't a new concept for me. I, I've always kind of been taught that, you know, people at the end of the day are people. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, I, I've been successful. I get worried when people say they're intentionally trying to put uh, more diversity in their network because then I think in a way you're, you're actively judging. If you're actively saying, I need three more friends of color, you know, it's like, eh, that's not well, really it's not a numbers game, right? It's about yeah. being open to experiences. And I think you're really, that's who you are. You're open to meeting people. And but so what I found yeah. is that, and Jessica talks about this in kind of the famous speech that she gave, where she talks about leaving room for edits and not judging people, but we all do judge people, right? So I had a woman come up to me after a speech recently, and then we hung out at the bar and she said, wow, you're really cool. You don't look cool. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, well, you're a 50-year-old white guy. And I was like, wow. And I looked at her, I go, is it okay if I judge you by the way you look? And then she was like, got really defensive. And I said, I'm just kidding. But I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, that it, it's a two-way street. But I teach people all the time that when, you, when you're standing at a conference where there is a cross-section of people of, of different colors, different genders, uh, you know, different backgrounds, whatever it is, that look for the person who's the least like, like you and go up and say hello. Now, sometimes that person isn't looking for somebody who's not like them. So they're like, ah, 
you know, the 50-year-old white guy just talked to me. But I find those are the greatest conversations I have when I walk up to somebody who has an entirely different, different background than I do. And, you know, I made a joke before about politics, but we all saw it after the last election on Facebook. People said, if you didn't vote the same way as me, I must unfriend you forever. And I, th- I think that's an unhealthy attitude uh, that we automatically want to do away with people who aren't just like us. Uh, you know, yeah, we don't want to hang around with a- but, you know, at the same time, we really need to, you know, be open to the fact that you can have a different opinion and not be a bad person. Um, so, you know, I think of those folks that you're just describing as demographic outliers. And it's, I'm always drawn to talk to the person who somehow is different than most other people in the room. And I 100% agree with you that I, that usually leads to like incredible rich conversations. Part of the way I think about it is that I appear like I'm really comfortable in the space. Like I could talk to anyone, but you know, if I don't know anyone, I'm just as nervous about who do I talk to and all those things. You know, it's just like human nature. But then there's someone who's visibly different or looks much more nervous <laughs> in some way. And I'm like, well, I can go and make them feel welcomed. And that would make puts me at ease <laughs> to know that I'm helping them feel welcomed. And then it ends up being a great conversation. Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I, I think I've run into more situations lately where I feel judged. And my joke is I realize I look I looked like I stepped out of Accountants Today magazine. <laughs> Yes. And, but, but, that, but all of a sudden, people make a lot of assumptions about who I am as a person because of my haircut and the clothes that I choose. And, you know, I'm, I'm a tall guy and things like that. And all of a sudden, I'm more conscious of it than I probably ever have been. Mm, which is part of diversity. You wouldn't be aware of it if everyone looked like you. Yeah. So one of my, one of my jokes is that I, I, I say when we talk about diversity, apparently I'm the problem. <laughs> nice. So, uh, we're we're getting towards the end of this, and I, I no, it can't end. It has to go on. This has to be the longest episode ever. <laughs> I have a question. I always love to ask people, and I, it gets to a part that I know we haven't talked about yet. But if we were connecting again a year from now, and one of the things I love about you, Tom, is I, I do see you in person at the annual National Speakers Association convention, which is awesome. Which is which is proof there's an association convention for everyone. There really is. <laughs> and um, But w- when we are connecting and celebrating all of your successes for the previous year, I want to know what we're going to be celebrating. So what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? So it's personal. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm entering a new stage. My wife and I are entering a new stage of life. And that is we have two daughters who are phenomenal. And as one of my daughters said, my wife and I, she told us, you and mom are very lucky. I said, why are we lucky? And she goes, because me and my sister are good kids. And I'm like, oh yeah, it had no parent. There was no, we didn't do anything about that. We were just lucky. But uh, my youngest daughter, who is brilliant, is about to be a senior in high school and is in the process of choosing colleges and where she wants to apply. And so if we fast forward 12 months from now, uh, she probably should have accepted her college admission uh, a year from now. So that's, I think, very exciting. And six weeks from now, my other daughter is graduating from you know, she was very driven to go to one of the most prestigious universities in the country, and, and she got herself into several. And she is graduating from Carnegie Mellon University in six weeks. And a year later, she will be uh, getting married to a young man who she met when she was a freshman. And they got serious really fast. And we were like, <laughs> like, he's going to be around. And uh, now he's going to be our son-in-law. <laughs> That's amazing. I have to say, my dad made a statement when I, I was 21, and, he, and my sister was 27. And he said, you know, I did, I did my job. And from this point forth, it's on you. But I got you here. And, you know, n- no one did anything bad or 
got hurt or hurt anyone. And like, yeah, so it's sort of passing the baton. I feel like you're about to pass the baton is what you're saying. Yeah, and I like having adult children. It's, you know, yeah. I came home today and I watched the neighbor like, you know, his kid was like on a tricycle and the kid was like going near the street and he had to go catch him and he was talking to him and his kid's like three years old and I was parking the car and I waved and I was getting out of the car and I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm reminded of the fact that my own father, my own dad was 52 years old, the age I am right now. My own dad was 52 when I was born and I'm like, oh my God. God, could you imagine starting over? He had three teenagers. They were ready to launch. Like, you know, they were like six or seven, eight years away from being done. And they had to start all over. Surprise. And uh, I, I, I look wow. at it, I, think, I don't know that I have the patience to have a three-year-old well, at, at this point, like you I, do. I'm, yeah, I'm turning 45 this year and I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, right? So it's, yeah, different, different ends of the spectrum that we're at. So, Tom, how can people find you and follow your work? Uh, you know, I mean, they can find me at TomSinger.com, which is T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. I'm all over the social medias at TomSinger, T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R, or at Cool Podcast is my Twitter handle for uh, the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Now, four and a half years old, 450 episodes. Uh, if the people listening are podcast listeners, which they are by definition, uh, they should go check out cool things entrepreneurs do. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tom. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 149. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's episode. Have you been thinking about working with me, but you're not ready to commit to a six-month program? Send me an email to ask me about the More Fundamentals, a three-month program that gets the information you need to take your business to the next level through relationship-based business strategies and gives you access to the community that will support you. My email is Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Tom, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review at Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on the way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.